Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcast network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello there, Caroline. Hello there, Sean. Um, now, it occurs to me that you told a little white lie last episode when when you said that we were doing a three-part series. Oh, well, I keep amending it, yes. On Lizzie Borden, but this story is just too good um, to let any stone go unturned. Is that right? Yes. So I've decided, screw it. We're, we're going live. We're doing a four-parter with this one, which kind of is like last Axe Murder March. Um, yeah, that's true. We did spend... Uh, well, three weeks talking about the man from the train. Yeah. But to me, this is just such a fascinating story, a big story. And I'm truly learning so much that I've never even heard about the case, which is one that I thought I knew kind of front to back. So if I'm coming up with new stuff, then I assume our listeners are also hearing new things. And there's a lot of like intrigue and petty drama and small town shadiness and like familial horror all sort of wrapped up into one and and lots of like tea right there's a lot of good like like drinking tea and actual spilling of the tea yes snatched wigs for sure snatched dresses we'll see today um so I don't I don't want anyone to miss a detail. I think I think it's all very interesting. It's kind of a a perfect distillation of the justice system at the time and how these crimes and Lizzie being a woman figured into this sort of structure that we already had at least in, you know, this New England area in the late 1800s. So it's it's a really fascinating look at American justice at the time. I feel like I should be, you know, Jesse Ventura, and there's like an an eagle behind me, like American justice. Well, we had uh, some other stories that we won't get to in this axe murder march, then, but maybe we'll, uh, because you know, you can only do axe murders. We only want to subject the (laughs) listener to axe murders for so long. Mm -hmm. But maybe we return to axe murder before next march, because there there are some good stories, and and also I think I can. Maybe we'll get a little little Patreon mini-soda out on Carla Faye Tucker. Right. Well, unfortunately, um, we've only covered three cases of axe murder so far, and there's plenty more in the world and in history. So I don't think we'll, as, as long as we're doing this show, I think we'll have plenty of uh, stuff for March and also beyond March. People, stop killing people with axes. Well... Yeah, but, well, because we now we have enough stories. Yes. Before we didn't, we needed a couple of these to happen, but now now they can stop. Right. 
So last week, we wrapped up the police investigation on the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden and dove into the official inquest into the crimes with interviews from notable figures and suspects in the case like John Morse, Emma Borden, Bridget Sullivan, and of course, Lizzie Borden herself, which was the only time she would ever speak under oath about the murders. And with how the inquest went, I don't blame her for not doing so after that. As we noted, Lizzie's answers at times contradicted themselves or avoided answering the actual questions asked during the inquest. At times, like everything you quoted either avoided the question or contradicted something she'd said before directly. Right. And then she would come back and say, no, I didn't say that or whatever. Uh, Again, giving us our episode title, uh, her moniker of Gaslight Queen. So whether or not she did do this, she certainly was a gaslight queen. And that is inherently suspicious. That's primarily why people thought then and think now that she did the crime, right? Well, that and she's the most logical person who could have done it. Yeah. And Sean, I looked into the boots thing that you mentioned. Um, You were mentioned hearing that she said she had helped her father out of his boots before his nap. Um. And I found mention of it in David Kent's book, 40 Wax, New Evidence in the Life and Legend of Lizzie Borden. So at one time, and I haven't seen this everywhere else. So again, like I mentioned, the details can sometimes vary from book to book, account to account. I'm trying to be as comprehensive as possible, but things will slip through the cracks. But at least at one point, she stated that she had removed her father's boots and helped him with his slippers when he laid down for his nap just before his murder. So that's a weird thing to invent. Well, it's weird because crime scene photos show that Andrew appears to still be wearing regular shoes post-mortem, not slippers. So here we seem to have another contradiction. Now, again, I don't know if this is just some random thing that popped up in one book and then other books started referencing it or whatever. It's hard to tell with this case um, when it's not in the official testimony, but it was there. So I wanted to mention it. Um, And you did you determine what the boots? I don't know if you could check with the manufacturer or something. (laughs) What were they made for? Um, As far as I know, they were made for walking. So. All right. I guess that's just what they'll do. Well, not anymore. Now, I also must add, um, and I didn't mention this last time, just after the discovery of the bodies and during the inquest itself, Lizzie was being administered regular doses of morphine for her nerves, initially by Dr. Bowen himself at the crime scene. Um, This dulling of her emotions via morphine may have affected her testimony, of course, and certainly her reactions to the events themselves, if they seemed dulled or strange she was literally on drugs yeah, depending on the the uh, dosage right depending on what she was prescribed well uh, i'll get into the dosage later yeah she could have uh, she could have even been confused and maybe that goes a long way toward explaining like i have no idea what i've said or what right <laughs> like, i don't like, even know your name yeah Yeah, so either way, the issues with her testimony helped cement her position as suspect number one in the murders of her father, Andrew, and stepmother, Abby, and set up the chaotic trial that was to come. So, Lizzie was served with an arrest warrant on August 11th, 1892, which was just a week after Andrew and Abby's murders. Please tell me we have a record of what she said. On the occasion. Well, the New York Times reported, quote, She took the announcement of her arrest with surprising calmness. 
though the New York Herald went in the complete opposite direction by writing that she fell into a fit of abject and potable terror. So Potable? I couldn't tell you what her actual reaction was. Wait, potable? Uh, potable. You could drink her fear? I assume this is an old-timey way to say potent. I don't know. Whatever the case, she was jailed that same day, taken to the county jail in Taunton to await her trial. And interestingly, the arrest warrant only mentioned Andrew Borden's murder, not Abby's, hmm. though she was eventually charged with both. Is that just because in like 1910, the man's murder mattered more? I don't know. I don't know if, if that's the case, if he's like, you know, the head of the household or whatever. So everything else is grandfathered in. Because to me, it seemed like she had more animosity toward Abby, if anything. So I right. don't know. Like Abby was the, the target and Andrew was like, well, I guess I have to kill dad too. <laughs> we don't have a lot of information about Lizzie's time in jail, but we do have a few details. The matron overseeing Lizzie at the Taunton jail was actually the mother of a childhood friend. And this allowed Lizzie some comforts that other prisoners didn't get, such as the matron supplying her own soft pillow instead of the standard prison issue. Lizzie was also able to order meals uh, to go from a nearby hotel wow. instead of just jail gruel. And it was during this time that Andrew Jennings would really become Lizzie's main defender and even a step in for her deceased father. You know, most of us didn't get easy delivery of gourmet food until like the Uber pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Jennings, as you may remember, was the whip smart lawyer with a penchant for dance um, he was the Borden family lawyer and was chosen by Lizzie and the family to represent her in the trial after initially being rejected as her counsel for the inquest. And at the inquest, the prosecutors basically said she can't have counsel or that that's not how this goes. This is like official testimony. She's not on trial, so she doesn't need counsel. Huh. Basically. Today, you would have a lawyer at something like this, right? You're not going to talk to the police at all without a lawyer. Well, if you're smart, yeah. Uh, the New Bedford Evening Standard reported that he would lay awake nights forming plans for Lizzie's defense, and he became her only spokesman, directing her and her allies not to speak to the press themselves, which is probably a good idea, even though things like demanding a lawyer straight out or not talking to the press is seen as suspicious even to this day. Yeah, but like... We see our reactions to everything Lizzie says. Like, you you don't want her talking to the newspaper. Exactly. Especially if she's drugged up. When a man named Curtis Peace that Lizzie had briefly met earlier wrote to ask permission to visit her at the jail, it was Jennings who responded to him. Quote, she does not wish to see you, nor to receive letters from you. She has not, tis true, a father to appeal to, or family to compel you to cease your attempts to force yourself upon her notice. But there are others who can and will supply this place. Basically, I'm the daddy now. Go away. Look at me. <laughs> Look at me. I'm the daddy now. Mm-hmm. Jennings also knew that the trial would be a difficult one, and he would be defending Lizzie against the bearish and brilliant district attorney Hosea Knowlton, who had made short work of her during the previous inquest. So he needed a wingman, and he knew it. He was primarily a corporate lawyer and was retained as such by Andrew Borden. Double murder was a whole new ballgame. 
So Jennings... Well, no wonder he's lying awake nights. Uh, I would too, yeah. Jennings enlisted Melvin O. Adams to join the defense team, and Melvin was a Boston lawyer and former assistant district attorney who was said to spend much attention to his looks, and they are worth it. Ooh. So apparently he's a, he's a you know, a suave looking guy. He's a handsome fop. Yeah, he was described as having a, a lovely mustache with, with perfectly waxed curls at the end. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if a waxed mustache was part of the, like, heartbeat image, or heartthrob <laughs> image today? Well, it was then, because these, these looks are worth it, says the newspapers. Adams was given the task of cross-examining the state's key witnesses, and with a record as both a prosecutor and defense lawyer, he was more than up to the task. He was a good person to enlist. The men tried to get the preliminary hearing thrown out because the same judge was to preside over the grand jury hearing that also presided over the inquest. And Jennings complained that this constituted prejudice since the judge had already heard the evidence against Lizzie, so he would have had time to form his own opinion. These complaints fell on deaf ears, however, (laughs) and the grand jury hearing began on August 25th. All right, but at least we know the lawyer's awake. He's on his feet. Yes. And this is not a trial, the grand jury hearing. It's to establish that there was probable cause for charging Lizzie with the crimes. I'm pretty sure this is standard even to this day, um, especially in cases where there's a little uncertainty. They want to make sure that a jury is at least not going to come back with, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. Right. So, and they don't they have want to, to make sure it's worth the state's time and money yes, to do it. Yes. And they don't have to prove guilt or anything like that. Just probable cause. It's very similar to um, a civil case. There's, there's different laws and rules in place. So the jury felt that indeed there was a probable cause and she was officially indicted on December 2nd. Jennings added another distinguished lawyer to the defense after this because he's like, oh, shit, oh, shit. Oh, now we're really doing it. Yeah. And this was former congressman and former governor of Massachusetts, George D. Robinson. Oh, she's really got some. This is an expensive defense. Yeah. Well, she's wealthy. Um, They're not doing much else with the money right now. Yeah. She's she's doing like an O.J. Simpson-esque defense right now. Right, and she's the now, dream team. And she's now personally, independently wealthy. Yes. And it's a good thing because it was rumored that Robinson was charging a $25,000 fee for the case. Mm-hmm. And Jennings and Adams each commanded around $15,000, respectively. So, I mean, in today's money, she's easily out half Hundred, a million. Hundreds of thousands, yeah. Half a million, 700,000, something like that. Mm hmm. The trial was set for June 1893, but the extended time in jail was wearing on Lizzie. Uh, In May, she wrote, quote, My spirits are at ebb tide. I see no ray of light amid the gloom. I try to fill the waiting time as well as I can, but every day is longer and longer. My heart is heavy and the burden laid upon me seems greater than I can bear. Which sounds like my Twitter during lockdown, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Or I imagine your Tumblr during high school. Oh, God, that was live journal. Tumblr was college. All were depressing. I, 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 I shudder to think of, my, of the Sean McCabe live journal oh, that's God. out there somewhere. I, I scrubbed it from the, mine from the internet. I've tried to go back and, and see if, you know, even on the Wayback Machine, there's no record. And it's for the best. I'm very sentimental about a lot of things, but my live journal, 
should not exist anymore. The moods alone. Weirdos coming out of the woodwork would weirdos coming out of the woodwork is like my dating history in high school. But anyway, um, this would not be the only indignity Lizzie had to endure. On Monday, October 10th, the Boston Globe published a bombshell article stating that actually Lizzie was pregnant. Andrew had known and he had threatened to banish her from the house if she didn't reveal the name of the man who got her into trouble. Mm. According to the article, the ultimatum was issued by Andrew on August 3rd, making it an obvious ignition point for the crimes to come. You know, you wouldn't expect a, like, illicit affair, secret baby scenario to come into. I mean, given that Lizzie and her sister are, like, so much is made of them being, like, spinsters who they couldn't marry off. Well, I think it actually makes sense, especially since there were these little rumors, even though some of the rumors were started by, like, Lizzie's own family members. Um, You know, if any spinsters are seen with any men, uh, of course, they're going to have chatter and such. And the the homosexuality and and lesbianism accusations really came later. Um, You mean they were made up for movies? Not necessarily, but, and I'll get into it, she was really described in masculine terms in the press very often. And I think that kind of played into it of like this very, people imagined this very butch woman capable of wielding an axe. Well, there's all this talk of building, making fishing lures by hand for her fishing trip and stuff. Right. But she's really just a fancy lady going and doing silly things with her fancy lady friends. Yeah, I've, I've done much harder manual labor than Lizzie was doing making fishing lures. But anyway, that seemed to come later. And I assume that the press coverage of Lizzie contributed to that with, with describing her in these masculine kind of terms and really emphasizing the spinster status. But at this point, I think it was more of a, you know, tawdry rumor of infidelity and and secret pregnancy sort of thing. But uh, this story was all complete bullshit. And Ah. yeah, Uh, Henry Tricky, the Globe's star crime reporter, bought what he thought was the government's case from a private detective named Edwin Edwin McHenry for $500. But it seems Tricky was out-tricked as McHenry had created the story himself and the Boston Globe, fearing being outscooped on such a great story, published without conducting their own investigation. Kind of like the, um, I don't know, certain people who have been tapped for political office really quickly with no background information. Oh, I, don't, I can't think of any figures <laughs> from the news that you could be referencing. Well, when you do things fast, you're not necessarily doing things right. And they didn't do things right. They were thoroughly called out for it. But this wouldn't be the only speculation about Lizzie. There was, of course, also much talk about Lizzie's mental disposition and possible insanity. Well, she's literally on drugs. Right. But that wasn't really the factor. It was more, we think she did it. And if she did it, she's got to be crazy to do it. Right. One headline at the time read, an asylum may be her lot. (laughs) So, 
Though most of those who knew her attested that she was a pretty regular gal, Lizzie herself spoke of having emotional distresses as recently as the evening before the murders when she was talking to close friend Alice Russell. Quote, When I was at the table the other day, the girls were laughing and talking and having a good time, and this feeling came over me, and one of them spoke and said, Lizzie, why don't you talk? Now, to me, it seems like she's experiencing depression, you know, kind of feeling alone in a crowded room sort of thing. Yeah, and that's, you know, and and like she has a purposeless shut-in existence. Yeah, it's not surprising to me that she feels depressed or lonely or down in any way. However, many print and even police quarters believed that she had something much more severe going on mentally. Quote, It is an open secret in police circles that the government offices believe Miss Borden was insane at the time of the murders. This is from a paper? Yeah, the Boston Advertiser. I love when they write about something that's an open secret Mm -hmm. in, you know, this this, uh, small professional community. Of course. But indeed, the prosecution was eager to get a professional assessment of Lizzie's mental state for the trial, and there was some interest in whether she might claim insanity if she were to confess to the act. Many of those contacted by prosecution, including former superintendents of insane asylums, declined to take part. Um, And Jennings kept on saying, like, no, we don't want someone to like assess Lizzie, especially if it's hired by the prosecution. There's just too much that could be biased or wrong there. A guy named Dr. Handy. Uh-oh. Which is unfortunate. It would only be worse if his name was Handsy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, and, and he was, um, you know, a proctologist oh. or, mm-hmm. or a, a gynecologist. Mm-hmm. Or, you don't want Dr. Handy. Or maybe you do. Pediatrician. Maybe. Well, okay, no. Uh, but he owned the cottage... Uh, where Lizzie had been expected to meet up with her friends on that trip that she was building fishing moors for. Well, Dr. Handy said that he'd never seen any indications of insanity and continued that, quote, although hysteria is common to that sex, she never showed any signs of it. So thanks, I guess. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of backhanded kind of compliments here. The hysteria familiar to that sex. Yeah, women are crazy, but she doesn't seem that crazy. Like, for a woman, pretty stable. Yeah. The fact that it was known that she had been menstruating at the time of the crimes was also subjected to intense scrutiny. I mean, you wouldn't want her finger on the button. (laughs) Some men believed that women were apt to be more hysterical during their periods, and they still think that, clearly. Despite all of this, Jennings rejected even the possibility that Lizzie would be pleading insanity and promised the trial would vindicate her fully. Lizzie was less confident than her lawyer. Quote, I cannot for the life of me see how you and the rest of my friends can be so full of hope over the case, she wrote to a friend in January 1893. Well, it's because you have so much money. Well, she didn't think of it that way. But whether or not she did do it, facing the trial must have been a terrifying prospect. But even D.A. Knowlton and Massachusetts Attorney General Albert Pillsbury felt their case was far from certain, even with their own belief that Lizzie had committed the murders. Personally, I would like very much to get rid of the trial of the case, Knowlton wrote to Pillsbury. However, I cannot see my way clear to any disposition of the case other than a trial. I think it may well be that the jury might disagree upon the case, 
but even in my most sanguine moments, I have scarcely expected a verdict of guilty. Hmm. And that might be because they're that you know Lizzie was a woman, and they didn't think that juries would feel she was capable of something like this, even if they thought that she was. Yeah, as, even now, but especially at this time, I think a wealthy... Like, there's no one more innocent than a wealthy white woman. Mm-hmm. A.G. Pillsbury himself had been expected to be the lead prosecutor, as it was a capital case. But due to continuing health issues, he brought on another DA, William Moody, to help Knowlton prosecute in his place. Moody, after the trial, would go on to serve in Congress, be appointed as Secretary of the Navy and then Attorney General of the United States by his old Harvard classmate, Teddy Roosevelt, and was eventually appointed by Roosevelt to the Supreme Court of the United States Uh in 1906. So very big, respected names on on both sides. Good men on both sides. (laughs) Great people on both sides. Yes. About a week before the trial was to begin, another murder in Fall River created an absolute uproar. Wow, great. So everyone stopped talking about this. For like two seconds. Because a 22-year-old woman named Bertha Manchester was found with 23 separate and distinct axe wounds on the back of the skull and its base. Whoa. Yeah. It's actually... Interesting. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as it is to you, it sounded quite familiar to those in Fall River, and some began to wonder whether the crime's perpetrator was actually the real Borden murderer. Reporter Elizabeth Jordan for the New York World wrote, So it seems there is in Fall River some Jack the Chopper who has a knack of hacking people into pieces with strikingly similar evidence of senseless brutality in each instance. It's a working title. We can probably do better than Jack the Chopper. Yes. And of slipping cleverly through the hands of the police just as the Whitechapel murderer or murderers in London. Again, those murders were five years before this, not even, so it's very fresh in the minds, and they're presenting this as their own Jack the Ripper as... Pretty much every crime, you know, major crime did in the late 1800s in the U.S. Yeah, and early 1900s. I think the Velisca newspaper accounts might have even yeah. referenced Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, a man named Jose Correa de Mello was soon arrested for the murder on June 4th after having confessed. And unfortunately for my ethnicity, DeMello was exactly the type who had been originally suspected in the Borden killings. Oh, one of those shiftless Portuguese. An insane Portuguese, uh, an immigrant who had murdered his farmer boss's daughter after a disagreement about wages. However, uh, Correa DeMello only had immigrated after the Borden murders, so he wouldn't have been around for those. Oh, so just a coincidence that it was around 20 blows to the back of the head with an axe. Yeah, in the same place, under similar circumstances that were suspected in the Borden case. It seemed to fit really well, but I guess he was still in Portugal or something at the time. It could be that's just a very common scenar- scenario for an <laughs> axe murder. An effective axe strategy is mm-hmm. hitting someone in the back of the head from behind. Yeah. So the trial of Lizzie Borden began on the very next day after DeMello's arrest, June 5th, 1893. After the break, we'll go through the first part of the trial and reassess our feelings on whether Lizzie Borden really did take an axe or not. 40 wax. Well. 81. 29-ish? 81 total. That's too many wax.
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Welcome back. Uh, When last we left you in our A block, we had just covered the very opening, the lead up and the very opening of this trial. And uh, we've really set the stage for a no holds barred legal battle here, Carrie, Mm -hmm. to decide the fate of Lizzie Borden. Uh, We have a future Supreme Court justice on one side of the uh, bench. We have um, like a former Massachusetts governor. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got, you know, another legal who's who on the other uh, uh, side on the defense. Mm -hmm. So take us through, Carrie. Take us in. uh, And uh, opening statements must have have, uh, uh, gotten people out of their seats. Sure. The trial, called at the outset by the Providence Journal, one of the greatest murder trials in the world's history, began in New Bedford, Massachusetts, about 15 miles east of Fall River. I love when they call a spade a spade and just advertise it like a circus. Yeah, well, it was. The locale was chosen as it was felt the Fall River area was far too much of a hotbed for bias. I mean, it had to be happening in in Massachusetts anyway, but I don't know if they went far enough away. The jury was made up of all men, as women were not allowed to serve in Massachusetts until 1951, Hmm, which seems late. Bad look. Yeah. All of the men, and uh, African-American men were allowed to serve before women were, which is interesting. They were able to serve since uh, the Civil War times, actually. Yeah, that, that that all tracks for me with the, with Massachusetts. Yeah. With Puritan Massachusetts. Yeah. All of the men were hardworking folk, middle and working class, and I believe all of them were married and most had children. On the first day of trial, Lizzie was recorded as wearing a black wool dress with a new black lace hat and black gloves, and a rather loud enamel pansy pin at her throat. A loud... Like a brooch. You know the outfit is somber when people comment on your pin being loud. Yes, exactly. But even the female reporters were judgy about Lizzie's demeanor and appearance. Quote, Every picture which has been made of this woman either absurdly flatters her or grossly maligns her, wrote Elizabeth Jordan once again. Viewed fully in the face, Lizzie Borden is plain to the point of homeliness. Viewed in profile, much of the unpleasantness of the woman's face disappears. It becomes then a rather refined and sensitive face, which is not without womanly gentleness. So again, this like weird backhand, like she's, she's ugly, but not that ugly guys. Uh, I mean, that is, that's someone trying to put themselves in the reasonable middle of the debate. You've got people saying she's a sexy murderess, mm-hmm. a, a femme fatale, mm-hmm. and you've got people saying she's uh, some hideous chud and she's going, guys. <laughs> she's just normal. She's, she's average. She's just kind of ugly. Lizzie was often described, as I mentioned before, as manly or brutish or muscular or hard-faced, likely as a way to explain how someone with such 
delicate sensibilities as a woman could commit such a brutal crime. Yeah, you would never, if you were just looking at a picture of Lizzie Borden and you weren't describing an axe murder, you would never describe her any of those ways. No, I would say she's uh, fairly plain, but not like so much more plain than people of the era. It's not like everyone was wearing makeup and lash extensions and weaves, you know. And she has like Rasputin-esque <laughs> frightening eyes. Well, her eyes were gray. Um, so they certainly stood out in black and white photography as being particularly light and, you know, having a kind of peculiar quality about them. And she seems to have her like resting posture has them so wide that she may as well not have lids. <laughs> Presiding over the trial were three judges, as in Massachusetts at the time, capital cases were heard by a panel of three superior court judges. And this was because the death penalty was on the table. These were Chief Justice Albert Mason, Associate Justice Caleb Blodgett, and Associate Justice Justin Dewey. And I feel like I never see the name Justin before, you know, 1980. Now you have a jury too, right? A 12-person jury? Yes. The three judges are just overseeing the trial? Yes. All of these judges were veterans of law practice for over 20 years, and all were respected older men with families of their own. Seems almost like a too many cooks. I don't know how <laughs> three judges is helpful. Well, I mean, in the case of the death penalty, I don't know, might be a good thing to have differing opinions. After jury selection and all the initial business of trial was completed, arguments began the next day. Moody gave the opening statement for the prosecution, going through the backstory of the Borden family and listing four particularly unusual facts that he felt were important to the lead up to the murders. One, John Morse, Lizzie's uncle, was visiting. Two, the household had suffered from food poisoning. Three, Lizzie had allegedly, according to a witness, gone to the drugstore to request prussic acid, in her words, to clean a sealskin cape. And prussic acid is a poison. Four, she visited her close friend Alice Russell the evening before the crimes to confide her fears that the family would be poisoned. So Moody then took the jurors on a virtual tour of the strangely laid out Borden home, which we did the first episode because it's all kind of important to how you know where people were at certain times and everything yeah besides lizzie being a shifty weirdo <laughs> the uh, strongest evidence against her is probably that she seems to have walked past the corpse of her um, stepmother yes and they do address this later uh eventually moody came around to the question of murder weapon now, a variety of cutting implements had been found in the basement and barn of the Borden home, but one had been selected by detectives as being the most likely weapon in the case. Wasn't this more of a bludgeoning than a cutting? It was, it was a whole thing. I mean, it was a small hatchet, so there would have been bludgeoning, and it was broken off at the base of its wooden handle. I don't know, I don't think that they had the handle. Uh, the hatchet was covered with ashes and dust as if it had been subjected to fire or like purposely coated on both sides. Um, like it wasn't just laying on its side and it had a, a, f a covering of dust. It, it was covered all around. And Moody also noted that the break in the wooden handle was a new break and a fresh break. And you can see, you can tell when wood is broken. It's like, you know, fresh on the inside. So this suggests that um, it might have occurred around the time of the murders. 
And also, it's weird for something to have a fresh break, but also be coated in exactly. ash. Unless someone That's- purposely coated it and didn't really think of those kinds of details because they're not a detective. Or tried to tried to burn the murder weapon, realized it wasn't working, and mm-hmm. then just broke it and hid the pieces. Mm-hmm. Exactly. As the piece de resistance, Moody calmly opened a bag he'd brought along and pulled out two skulls, the heads of Andrew and Abby Borden, which what? apparently they'd been buried without. What a piece de resistance. Mm-hmm. The, I think the coroner or whoever had presided over the autopsies just kept the skulls. Oh, this would be a nice conversation piece. These poor people were buried without their heads. Weird. Ted Williams, eat your heart out. I know, but at least he signed up for that, or or maybe did, but they certainly didn't. I think his kids signed up. That's a a complicated thing. Uh, Refer to our Dark Disney episode. Well, the kids in this case did not know about this. Uh, The revelation threw the courtroom into chaos, which would happen if you unexpectedly show people some heads. And the Fall River Daily Globe gleefully announced, quote, Lizzie Borden, the sphinx of coolness, who has so often been accused of never manifesting a feminine feeling, had fainted. And indeed, upon seeing the skulls of her mother and stepmother, Lizzie almost passed out until given smelling salts and water. Fainting being a feminine feeling. Yeah. Well, again, she's regularly referred to as a sphinx in the press. And who knows if the morphine kind of made her this sort of dulled figure. Now, that's because she was constantly posing riddles to the judge and the uh, 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 lawyers. You say that, but she kind of was in a way. (laughs) She's the gaslight queen. The jury would be soon taken on site to important areas in the case, like the Borden home and the pharmacy Lizzie had supposedly shopped at. One of the first people to be called as a witness was John Morse, who gave a familiar accounting of his arrival at the Borden home and his whereabouts on the day of the murders. Nothing really stood out to me in his uh, trial testimony that was different or anything. Bridget Sullivan was called soon after, and many were particularly excited to hear her testimony. Reporter Joe Howard called her a sensation, adding, Her disappearance from the Borden premises two days after the tragedy and her whereabouts since that day have been a mystery. Call me a sensation, just don't call me Maggie. (laughs) Of course, her whereabouts really hadn't been a mystery. Uh, She left the Bordens, and actually begun employment at the New Bedford Jail under the guidance of a Mrs. Hunt, who is the matron. She's like, well, it's better than the Borden house. I assume she's doing some sort of cleaning duties there, too. And this was not the jail where Lizzie spent most of her time awaiting trial. That would have been awkward. Yeah, but I'm actually unsure of if Lizzie spent any time here during the trial, because the trial was being held in New Bedford, and this was the New Bedford Jail. I don't know if you know she had any interstitial time in that jail Mm. if they had crossed paths in this way it might make for a particularly interesting detail but i couldn't find any reports of that bridget maggie bridget maggie uh she was grilled on her background her movements on the day of the crime she doesn't work for the boards anymore she's just (laughs) she's just just bridget um and she was also grilled on her relationships to the borden family members her details remained much the same as previously, although um, the fact that she stated she had gone back and forth from outside to inside many times over the course of the morning, the first time being to vomit, 
because she was probably still experiencing the symptoms of food poisoning. Right. Um, and later she had to go get multiple buckets of water, one after the other, multiple from the barn. buckets to vomit into. <laughs> uh, water from the barn to wash the windows. So she's going back and forth at least probably like 10 times. So this would have made it incredibly difficult for any outsider to sneak onto the property and into the house without being seen. Bridget repeated that she had unlocked the front door for Andrew when he returned from his morning errands, and it found the door locked unexpectedly, and that Lizzie had been descending the stairs when Andrew arrived home. She reported that Lizzie had told Andrew that Abby had received a note and gone out, and Lizzie had asked her if she planned on going out in the afternoon, and if she did, Lizzie said she would... She should lock the door, quote, for Mrs. Borden has gone out on a sick call and I might go out too. Again, we have this repetition of Abby getting a note, at least according to Lizzie, which of which no proof was ever found. There was the note that uh, Dr. Bowen burned, yep, but that either referenced his daughter or Emma Borden. So we don't know where this mysterious right. visitor is you know like who had called her no one ever came forward he claimed it was a non-specific letter about his daughter the guy who was in the room with him said that he saw the word emma on the paper before it was shoved into a fireplace Mm -hmm. bridget however wasn't feeling up to going out on her afternoon off so she headed up to bed to lay down her nap would be interrupted by lizzie calling that andrew had been murdered and so the rest of the day was a nightmare for poor bridget sullivan On re-examination, Moody inquired about the blue dress Lizzie had been wearing the morning of August 4th before it was agreed by all witnesses that she had changed into a pink wrapper for the afternoon. And wrapper, I think, is just a kind of dress. It's not LL Cool J in a feather boa. (laughs) No. Bridget confirmed that it was a blue dress made the spring before with a dark blue figure on a lighter blue background. It was noted in the New Bedford Evening Journal that Bridget emerged from the whole ordeal rather unscathed. But it was Lizzie, not Bridget, who would bear the brunt of society's judgments forevermore. Well, yeah, we're pretty sure that Bridget didn't kill anyone here, so. Mm. Well, but she was the second best option. So she definitely had a lot of scrutiny and a lot of people believed that she had done it. What do you make of the door being locked? I think it's strange because clearly Bridget and Andrew didn't expect it to be locked and it was locked from the inside. It was locked from the inside. Yes. Uh, unless he didn't have a key, Bridget had to lock, unlock it from her side, which is why she was swearing because she was having trouble with it. And that's why she Lizzie heard Lizzie laugh at the, the top stairs. of the stairs. Yeah. And Lizzie making special mention to lock the door is also interesting in light of this. But I don't know why the door would be locked unless it was a situation where... She was hoping no one else would come home and she could just kill Abby and that would be that, but I don't know. I don't know where it would figure into the story. I don't know how much water that plant holds. The dad's gonna come home sometime. Well, exactly. And also Bridget's already there, so why does it matter? Yeah, it's so strange. And the fact that it had to be locked from inside, because it's also not like somebody locked that it's not a knob lock that someone could have done on their way out of the house. Yeah, so it seems like he did not lock it on the way out. I don't know whether he didn't have a key and that's why Bridget had to unlock it, but someone locked it from the inside. 
was it or from the outside and then went around and back into the house i don't know right if it was like a knob lock yeah i don't know um so i I, maybe like an intruder on their way out for some reason even if it's just a weird instinct repetition muscle memory thing locks the door maybe uh and keep in mind there was also a screen door that bridget kind of went back and forth on whether she remembers her latching it or unlatching it at specific times I would have trouble remembering that too. Um, But yeah, so there are other entrances. But again, we have people coming and going from the house, not seeing anyone else. Next call by the prosecution would be the witnesses who first came on the scene in the immediate aftermath of the murders. First came Dr. Seabury Bowen, described as a most unwilling and obviously essential witness. (laughs) Bowen fumbled when trying to recall what Lizzie had been wearing before she'd changed. Most reported the dress to be blue, but Bowen remembered it as a drab calico. Bridget was recalled to address the dress issue. Such a specific thing to misremember. (laughs) Calico? I guess. And Bridget stated that actually Lizzie had been wearing a blue calico dress and had changed when the fuss was over into a gingham dress of plain blue with a white border. So now there was possibly two blue dresses at play in the morning before Lizzie was noted as wearing the pink wrapper during police questioning, which is weird. Well, that is weird. And two blue dresses and eyewitness testimony being what it is. I'm going to call that one blue dress. Probably, yeah. Melvin Adams then rose to question Bowen from the defense side and highlighted that unlike Adelaide Churchill and John Morse, Bowen hadn't seen Abby Borden's body as he climbed the stairs initially, which he felt was important in establishing that it was possible not to have seen the body from the stairs, considering it was likely that Lizzie had descended the stairs after her stepmother's murder. And Lizzie was like, I don't remember if I did or if I didn't, but if I did, I don't remember seeing anything. And Adams is pretty much saying, well, the doctor didn't see anything either. So it is possible to be on the stairs and not see the body, even though other people did from the stairs. It's a lot of back and forth. Yeah, but that's important yeah. to note. Adams also had Bowen put on the record what he had given Lizzie for her nerves the day of the murder. And that day he had given her bromo caffeine and then a day later, an additional one eighth grain of sulfate of morphine. The day after that, so Saturday, he doubled the dose, which was the dose she was still on continuously at the inquest that next week. Bowen also conceded that those on morphine could experience hallucination and memory issues, which prompted reporters to ask, what must have been Lizzie's mental condition after several days of dosing with the stuff? With the stuff. But it is important to figure into her general demeanor. Yeah, And maybe some of her confusion, if she's having memory loss and hallucinations or whatever, it's a bad time to have it when you're on, you know, the stand. Yeah, I mean, everything she says is still really suspicious, and to me, Mm -hmm. she still fits the hole we have better than anybody else. Sure. But, two mitigating factors, she could have walked past mom, uh, stepmom without seeing her dead. Mm Mm-hmm. And some of this weird, shifty behavior could be explained by just being on, I don't know, a pretty good amount of drugs. Oh, yeah. Again, that was enough to definitely have some mental consequences. Adelaide Churchill, the neighbor, was next on the stand. And unlike Bowen, she seemed perfectly willing to bask in the spotlight. As Joe Howard put it, 
No May Day queen was ever happier than Sister <laughs> Churchill on the stand. So she's having fun being the center of attention. Churchill testified that she had seen Andrew leave in the morning um, when he was going on his errands before she went out to do her own shopping. And on the way back home, she had seen Bridget running back from Dr. Bowen's house. So this must have been when Bridget had run across the street at Lizzie's behest after Andrew's body was discovered. Mm -hmm. After Adelaide unpacked her groceries, she looked out the window and saw an excited or agitated Lizzie leaning against the kitchen door. Adelaide asked what was wrong, and as we know, Lizzie replied, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Which is a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. But she could have been in shock. She's the one who found the body either way. Do come over. But didn't, didn't she say someone's come in and killed father? She said that to Bridget. She was like, someone's murdered dad. So... She off, uh, Adelaide also offered a detailed recounting of what Lizzie had been wearing at this time, and I'm prone to trust her memory rather than Bowen's, considering that Adelaide was a woman and would have had more interest in recounting specific fashions. She would have taken more notice of these things. Churchill said that the dress that, um, that Lizzie was wearing when she went over was not the dark blue one offered by the prosecution, but instead a light blue and white woven together with a dark navy blue diamond figure. Oh my God, another dress. And Churchill specified that there was no spot of blood on the dress, nor Lizzie's hair or hands that she saw. The main witness of the day proved to be Alice Russell, described as Lizzie's turncoat friend. Wow, by the paper. <laughs> Russell was described as the very model of the typical New England spinster, tall, thin, angular, of precise manners, spare figure, and sallow face. <laughs> She's described like a villainous Harry Potter character. It's pretty brutal. Russell had been a neighbor to the Bordens for over a decade until her family moved to a different area of town, but had remained Lizzie's closest confidant aside from probably her own sister, Emma. Alice had even stayed at the Borden house to comfort Lizzie in the time after the murders. However, Lizzie had branded her a traitor during her testimony to the grand jury before trial, when Alice had disclosed that she had seen Lizzie burn a dress of hers in the kitchen, in the kitchen stove the morning after Andrew and Abby's funerals. Um, okay. So this is not at the inquest, this is at the grand jury hearing. Uh, Carrie, you've got the bucket of blood. You've got <laughs> somebody, bur Lizzie, burning dresses. She's wearing a multitude of dresses on the day. Now, I know she's probably wearing a multitude of dresses every day. Yes, keep in mind, it's, it's, not, it's not that crazy for people to have changed from activity to activity, especially when you have so much time on your hands. It would have been natural to have an earlier in the day outfit, maybe something else to wear out and then something for dinner. So don't, it's not that crazy, but it is crazy that she's like doing all this changing when people are lying dead in the house. Well, and then you just have to know how it looks when you're burning a dress two days after your, uh, the murder of your stepmother you hated. Well, she certainly realized that eventually. And there's the bloody rags in the kitchen that Bridget says she knows nothing about. The cellar, yes. So this testimony about the burning of the dress had been seen as key in establishing just cause for Lizzie. And of course, Lizzie didn't take this supposed betrayal of her trust well, whether or not she actually did it. 
it was clearly difficult for Alice to betray her friend in this way. Um, she hadn't mentioned it during her initial police questioning about the crime. She had left it out. But then she was agonizing about the oath that she'd taken on the stand to tell the truth and the whole truth. So help me God. And she consulted a lawyer and made her statement after that. I mean, that also lends credibility to me, if that's true. Mm -hmm. After this, Alice stopped visiting Lizzie in jail. And her presence was one of the only things that drew any reaction out of Lizzie, who seemed to be trying to maintain a stoic face throughout the rest of the proceedings. People noted that she, like, shifted in her seat, you know. Alice Russell testified that Lizzie had told her she was depressed the night before the murders, which we know, and that she had some knowledge of the alleged food poisoning and even Lizzie's fears that someone was attempting to poison the family. The evening of the murders, Alice went to the cellar of the Borden home with Lizzie. Um, Lizzie had a slop pail with her, and Lizzie went to the water closet room to rinse out the pail. A, a slop pail? Yeah, I didn't... Like for the animals? I don't know, because they mentioned Andrew having a slop pail earlier. I don't know if it's they like... They must have pigs or something. Well, I don't know if it's like an indoor shitter, you know, like a, like a you know, because they only have the bathroom in the basement and the barn or the outside. I don't know. She didn't say what was in the pail. On Sunday morning, Alice saw Lizzie by the kitchen stove and reported that Emma asked Lizzie what she was going to do. So Emma's privy to this as well. Lizzie replied, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It's covered in paint. The thing, said Alice, was a dress, light blue with dark figures on it. Alice apparently left the room during this because she was like, I don't want to be a part of this. But then she came back in thinking, well, I should be witness to this if it's important because this seems bad. Did, uh, did Lizzie specify that it was red paint by any chance? No, no. In the days afterward, as police questioning increased, both women seemed to realize how bad of an idea it was to burn a dress while you're a suspect for murder, ostensibly while wearing a dress. Interestingly, no one on the defense would challenge this series of events during the trial or even attempt to disprove that Lizzie had burned a dress. So that's very interesting. So we can presume she did burn the dress. We can assume she burned a dress, whether or not it's part of a crime. Who knows? Members of the police force would testify next about the day of the murders and the timeline of the investigation, including the discovery of the broken hatchet and the search for any blood-stained clothing. It was noted that while no blood-stained dresses were found, no paint-stained dresses were either. And this was in the time before a damaged dress was allegedly burned the Sunday after the crime. So on that, like, Friday, Saturday, they didn't find any paint-stained dresses that would corroborate there being a paint-stained dress to burn. Right. After these particularly damning testimonies, it was said in the papers, this was a bad day for Lizzie Borden. Um, yeah, it was a terrible day. And also, that that thing with the dress is, is bad. I, <laughs> you, you were starting to convince me that, like, a lot of this is more circumstantial than I thought. Um, but you know what? Imagine just being scared, maybe a little dumb. You're innocent, but you might have something that looks bad and you burn it. 
You know, there's a possibility that, that she's just quite unlucky in terms of d- the decisions she's making. And she might be making all of them under the influence of drugs, which but, has her confused. And There's a chance. But this could, you could also interpret this as someone attempting to get away with a murder while being on drugs. Of course. And that's that squares a little bit more to me so far. But we'll see what we have coming in part four. Yes, next week we'll finally reach the end of the Lizzie Borden story with the rest of the tumultuous trial and its explosive finale on June 20th, 1893, just three weeks after proceedings began. So this was no O.J. Simpson two-year-long trial. And, uh, you know, no spoilers on how the trial goes, but uh, Lizzie... Most people knows. But Lizzie... Most people know what happened. May have lived most of the rest (laughs) of her life in a sumptuous mansion, so... Yes, we'll also talk about what happened to the main players, in this case after the verdict, and examine how infamy changed Lizzie Borden's life forever, whether or not she really was guilty. Or whether or not she cared. Yes, and then, of course, we'll each deliver our own final verdicts about the guilt of Lizzie Borden and go through each theory to decide what really happened at the house on 92 Second Street on August 4th, 1892. I'll end here with a rarely quoted second verse of the famous Lizzie Borden nursery rhyme we've all heard since we were children. Oh, can you sing it in the smart guy uh, tune? Oh, I don't even remember what the tune was like. (laughs) But this is uh, to show you the kind of belief uh, that prevailed in the public that Lizzie and the defense were up against. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Come back next week to see how prophetic that verse really was. Big sumptuous mansion. Yeah. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Let's check in with our friends in the aberrant animal kingdom. It's Poe's Cryptid Corner. Good boy. Uh, Listener, he actually comes in and does that live, (laughs) that theme song, every time it comes up. So, um, you know, he's been very quiet for this record so far, and I, I think he's doing a great job. Our friends at Coast to Coast AM are reporting an attack by a mystery monster in Gunadola, India, that killed dozens of sheep. Uh, dozens of sheep. Mm-hmm. Residents of that village say the terror began Sunday when 20 of the animals were found torn to pieces in some kind of predatory attack overnight with their at- intestines, quote, ripped apart. Ripped not just out, but apart, you yeah. say. None of the villagers had heard any noise coming from the sheep enclosure the night before, and no one had seen whatever had made the attack. Oh, that's the scary part. So the sheep just... Sheep aren't quiet. The sh- yeah, right. And they just become intestine confetti overnight it's like um in fallout 4 when you do your melee thing and you just sneak up on you know all of these 
mire lurks and everything and it's just silent yeah and sean's crazy in fallout 4 <laughs> <laughs> i i use a gun he he just cuts people up no it's it's two levels of the blitz perk and then you can dash 30 feet across <laughs> a room and uh, uh kill everyone with a knife well, the situation went from bad to horror film when nine more animals were found killed the morning after that. And if nothing was heard then, when people are probably especially, you know, listening closely and on alert, uh, that's pretty weird. Coast to Coast says the incidents resemble similar attacks across rural parts of India over the past few years, including a spree of attacks in 2017 in the village of Niali that left over 150 sheep dead over the span of a few months. Oh, so these guys are getting off light. That's so many sheep. The stealthy nature of the attacks has led some to speculate that the chupacabra is expanding its range from the Americas to the Near East. Oh, and, and expanding its techniques from goat <laughs> sucking to sheep exploding. Yes. But skeptics note the region is also home to big predators like tigers and hyenas. Oh, yeah. Bengal tiger. But again, weird that they didn't hear anything, I guess. Tigers can be very quiet and stealthy. For like 20 sheep in a row with no sheep going like, eh. I don't think a tiger's eh. move. I don't think a tiger's move is usually to kill 20 sheep, <laughs> but um, it's weird. Well, if that is the chupacabra out there, and if you're a listener, we hope you're settling into your new home. Um, just, you know, stop killing sheep. Oh, it would be cool if he listened, though. Hi. Hi, Hi Chippy. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And thank you. Big special thanks to those already joining us in our top tiers on Patreon. That would be Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ozzy Sean Downs, and two new patrons to call out this week. Hi, Sue, and hi, Ryan. Uh, welcome aboard, guys. Thank you so much for joining the squad. We are so thankful to have you. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Let the dog bark. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.